Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you on a weekly journey through the Word Diet. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so grab them and start a little group. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Numbers, an important historical book in the Old Testament that has great relevance to the Christian life. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now, we're working our way through the end of the book of Numbers, and we have reached chapter 33, which details the wilderness travels and provides a summary itinerary for the people of Israel between Exodus 12 and Numbers 12. I'm sure this will be a great disappointment to you, but I'm not going to read this chapter. You'd probably smile as you would hear me try to wrestle with how to pronounce a lot of these words and places. But we will have a few things to say about the chapter. Verses 1 and 2 talks about the stages in their journey, and then this goes on to list out 40 stops. Each is marked by the phrase, camped at. And so we can see that list unfold here. Now, 40 stops in 40 years, that should get your attention. On average, it's one per year, but it's not one stop per year in this record. Uh, If you look at the previous chapters and line these things up, it was obviously concentrated in various time frames. The bookends are interesting. Verses 3 and 4 mentions Ramesses, which is a reference to Egypt, which includes the important and oft-repeated details of the Passover. And then verse 49 ends with the plains of Moab, where they find themselves now. Now, this is not a comprehensive list. It's at least somewhat symbolic, especially given that number 40. But I do like what Gordon Wenham says here. Since Moses' great achievements took place at the stations mentioned, this list serves as a sort of obituary for him. But there's more to the list than this. It summarizes the main themes of the books of Exodus and Numbers. It reminds the reader of the great obstacles the nation has overcome in escaping from Egypt and crossing the Sinai Desert. If God has helped Israel thus far, then he will surely enable them to get to the land of Canaan. It's also, therefore, a fitting prelude to the last group of laws in the book, starting at the end of this chapter, which deal explicitly with the land. So while the details may be boring to us, they would help the Israelites, and really for us if we're looking for it, understand that this was a varied and difficult trip. If you just list the wilderness or ignore these details altogether, you miss that point. Think about you know a road trip you took to Colorado or something. Uh, just saying you went to Colorado doesn't get to uh, how interesting the trip itself would have been. It also implicitly points to the big disobedience at Kadesh in Numbers 13 and 14, the rebellion that kept them out of the Promised Land 38 years earlier. It's a big what if, right? We wouldn't have had to go through this chapter if we'd simply been obedient back in Numbers 13 and 14. I think for an analogy, we think about our own life. Are we making progress or are we simply like the people of Israel wandering through our lives? Finally, I think we see here the importance of remembering details, the failures, the successes, the occasions for God's deliverance and provision for us and those who follow God. It's important to keep track of these things. 
Roy Honeycutt says some of these names had little meaning to the Israel that prepared to enter Canaan, but in God's providences, there are no common places. Israel never forgot whence she had come, nor should any generation, for our heritage consists of those common places made holy by the presence of God and hallowed by a depth of divine experience shared at those strange places. When people forget whence they have come, they usually forget where they're going, for the two are coupled together. We worship a God of nature and creation. He's working with humans in time and space, and we have bodies and we inhabit places. It's important to keep this in mind, to remember where we came from and where we're going in our travels on this earth. Now from here, the book closes with six laws and two sets of three in line with the pattern of the Pentateuch in many cases, explicitly related to their occupying Canaan. The first of these is in Numbers 33, verses 50 through 56. On the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images and their cast idols and demolish all their high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Distribute the land by lot according to your clans. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance. To a smaller group, a smaller one. Whatever falls to them by lot will be theirs. Distribute it according to your ancestral tribes. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you live, and then I will do to you what I plan to do to them. The key phrases are in the middle of the passage, verse 53, to take possession of the land and settle in it. That's an oft-repeated theme in the Pentateuch, pre-Joshua. We can see some application here to justification and sanctification. Justification is taking possession of the land. Sanctification is the process, lifelong, of settling in that land. And then verse 54, distribute the land by lot. The bookends of these two verses are focused on the same theme. Verse 52, to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. Notice it doesn't say kill them. They just had to drive them out. And then verse 52, also destroy all their carved images, cast idols, demolish their high places. Why? Well, if not, mixing would lead to compromise. Verse 55, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. As an economist, I'm prone to think of things in terms of benefits and costs, and we see God portraying this as a benefit-cost analysis, that his concerns are that the benefits in the allurements of sin of being around these people, or even more likely, the benefits of avoiding war and its inconveniences, are going to be weighed improperly against the long-run costs of compromising with the people. They must be driven out. Their religious places must be destroyed. And the same is true for us as well, that it's tempting for us to settle for short-run benefits and miss the long-run costs. The Life Application Bible says, like the Israelites moving into the promised land, we can destroy the wickedness in our lives or we can settle down and live with it to move in and possess the new life. We must drive out the sinful thoughts and practices to make room for the new. And we see the same lack of seriousness in many of our own lives. We say we want to get rid of porn, but then we keep the computer on our smartphones. We say we want to deal with food properly, but we seem to keep all the snacks and the sodas in the house. It's simply not consistent. Are we all in or not? Now, why do we do this? Well, fear, pride, we think it's not that big of a deal, but ultimately we misunderstand the benefits and costs of sin. 
the last phrase here is pretty sobering as well. Verse 56, I will do to you what I plan to do to them. That's pretty clear and stark. And it's an appropriate punishment. If you commit the same sin, you get the same judgment. This points to God's perfect and proportionate justice and a harsh justice outside of his mercy and grace. Numbers 34 lays out the boundaries of Canaan. Verses 1 through 12 describes those boundaries in some detail. I think a number of small points come out here. First of all, the practical details are important, and it outlines God's blessing to them. The borders include Egypt, which is mentioned in verse 5, and the dead or salt sea in verse 12. Now, certainly the reference to Egypt would be a reminder to them. It's possible that the reference to the dead or salt sea would be a reminder of Sodom and Gomorrah back in Genesis 19. In any case, it's interesting that the boundaries would limit their conquest, and it also underlines that enemies could leave the area. It's not like Israel was going to chase them all down and kill them. The point is not killing all of them. The point is clearing out the promised land. This also models contentment with what God gives. They're not supposed to go out and get even more territory. They're supposed to settle with the land that God has provided, as outlined in Numbers 34. Now, this is, in practice, larger than they ever occupied. It only ever got approached under David's rule. Second Chronicles 9.26 is a useful reference on this. And this is a bit of a stretch spiritually, but God gives us more than we can ask for or imagine or achieve in many cases, as was the case for the people of Israel in their history. Now, verse 13 lays out the nine and a half tribes and the provision of land to them by lot. Verses 14 and 15, the land for the two and a half tribes. Notice that it says have received in the past tense. This is a reference to the Transjordan tribes that we talked about in the last segment in Numbers chapter 32. And then verses 16 through 29, the leaders are to assign the inheritance or the land. This was described back in chapter 1, verse 15 through 26. And it takes us back to just a few verses ago. Verse 54 talks about that the land will be distributed by lot and by size. The use of lots would leave it to God and thus avoid suspicion of favoritism. And the size of the tribe should, of course, accord with the size of the land as well to be proportionate. Last details here, verse 17 mentions Eleazar, the new high priest, and then Joshua listed as well there. And then verse 19, Caleb, out of the tribe of Judah, is the first to receive land in this list. Now, the beginning of chapter 35, verses 1 through 8, lists out the Levite towns. Remember that they receive no land, so this is a nice follow-up to chapter 34, but they would receive towns in the land as they did their ministry. Verse 2 says the towns and pasture lands to be given to the Israelites are out of the other Israelites' inheritance. Verse 4 details that the pasture lands should be 1,500 feet, which is 1,000 cubits in the Hebrew, in each direction from the town wall. Remember also that the Levites would have livestock that came from the Israelites' tithes and offerings, and so this gives them land to control that livestock. Verses 6 through 8 lay out that there will be 48 towns in all. They're going to be spread across the land. This lines up, interestingly, with Genesis 49.7, the blessing or prophecy from Jacob about Levi being scattered is fulfilled here. Verse 8 details that it should be taken in proportion to each tribe's inheritance, so no particular surprise there. And then it mentions the six cities of refuge, which is a really big topic, but we'll have to get to that after our break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. 
Welcome back to the Word Diet. Right now we're in Numbers 35. In the previous segment, we covered verses 1 through 8, which is an overview of the Levite towns. Now, six of those are scheduled to be cities of refuge. And so now we start into the rest of chapter 35 with what turns out to be a really important institution in the Old Testament and uh, pointing forward to the ministry and the person of Jesus Christ. Let's start with verses 9 through 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, select some towns to be your cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. They will be places of refuge from the avenger, so that anyone accused of murder may not die before standing trial before the assembly. So the purpose here is clear enough from verses 11 and 12. These are towns to which a person who's killed someone accidentally may flee from the term is the avenger of blood. We'll spend more time on that in a minute. So that a person accused of murder may not die before he stands trial. We'll have much more to say on all of that, but I think you can see where this is going. Verse 14, three of these are to be on each side of the Jordan. This is established in Joshua 20. And verse 15 will specify that this is for both the Israelites and the aliens. One of many, many examples where the aliens are treated the same way as the Israelites, which is a remarkable innovation for that time. Let's go to verses 16 through 21. If anyone strikes someone a fatal blow with an iron object, that person is a murderer. The murderer is to be put to death. Or if anyone is holding a stone and strikes someone a fatal blow with it, that person is a murderer. The murderer is to be put to death. Or if anyone is holding a wooden object and strikes someone a fatal blow with it, that person is a murderer. The murderer is to be put to death. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death. When the avenger comes upon the murderer, the avenger shall put the murderer to death. If anyone with malice of forethought shoves another or throws something at them intentionally so that they die, or if out of enmity one person hits another with their fist so that the other dies, that person is to be put to death, that person is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when they meet. So this is quite repetitive on the idea of intentional murder. It's first introduced back in Exodus 21, verses 12 and 14. And if so, the murderer shall be killed by the avenger of blood. Now, the avenger of blood is someone who's angry, perhaps irrational, and someone in the family. The same term is actually the kinsman redeemer in Ruth 2.20, who protected the extended family here in the case of murder, but in many other contexts as well, providing an heir for a dead brother, as in the case of leverate marriage. For example, you can read about that in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6, or retrieving land or persons sold into indentured servanthood because of poverty, for example, in Leviticus 25, verse 25 and 47 through 49. Implicitly, this institution both condones and embraces vengeance, and it is a picture of zeal rather than a lukewarm response. Something is to be done about a murderer, not just for the individual, but for society. This is the death penalty for murder. But there's also no penalty for murders of passion of this sort. This doesn't constitute murder of the sort prohibited in the Sixth Commandment, but it's a killing that arises as a form of justice. And even if it's out of passion from the avenger of blood, that is defended here. That is not condemned in any way. 
Now, verse 30 does give a caveat here that it does require two or more witnesses. So you can't just off somebody if it's just you and him. And there has to be more than that. So there is even justice within the process of a vengeance killing. But punchline here is that the city of refuge is set up for unintentional murder. And that's where we go in verses 22 and 23. But if without enmity someone suddenly pushes another or throws something at them unintentionally or without seeing them drops on them a stone heavy enough to kill them and they die, then since that other person was not an enemy and no harm was intended, the assembly must judge between the accused and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. There are other examples provided in other passages. For example, Deuteronomy 19 talks about swinging an axe and the head comes off accidentally. So this is for accidental or unintentional murder. Matthew Henry describes it as for when hands were guilty, but not hearts. And this is one of many occasions in the scriptures where we see that motives matter. Romans 2.16 talks about God judging people's secrets through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.5, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. But this is not a call to negligence. Deuteronomy 22.8, When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. And then verse 24, the assembly must judge. So it's verses 25 through 28 where we're given the details of that judgment. The assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send the accused back to the city of refuge to which they fled. The accused must stay there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the accused ever goes outside the limits of the city of refuge in which refuge was taken and the avenger of blood finds that person outside the city, the avenger of blood may kill the accused without being guilty of murder. The accused must stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Only after the death of the high priest may an accused person return home. So if innocent, the assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood. This is a cooling off period. But this is not if the person is definitely guilty. The protection ends there. Deuteronomy 19 verses 11 through 13. But if out of hate someone lies in wait, assaults and kills a neighbor, and then flees to one of these cities, the killer shall be sent for by the town elders, be brought back from the city, and be handed over to the avenger of blood to die. Show no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. Verses 26 and 27 here, if the accused leaves the city and the avenger finds him, the avenger may kill the accused without being guilty. So this allows for crimes of passion. You can leave the protection of the city of refuge, but why would you? And the avenger is not constrained to kill him, but it does allow for that possibility. In a word, it's imprisonment for manslaughter, using modern terminology. And as a side note, it's the only example of prison or something like prison in the Old Testament. The other weird detail here is verses 25 and 28 both mention the death of the high priest, also mentioned in Joshua 20, verse 6, and we'll have more to say about that later. For now, we would note that it symbolizes atonement and remission of the manslayer's sin. So if we think about how this would play out in the Old Testament context, the city of refuge would provide refuge and just punishments, or not, and quick justice. The avenger of blood would know where to look. But it would also seem to be for a trivial number of cases. I mean, how many times do axe heads fly off accidentally and kill someone? How often do I accidentally drop a heavy stone and kill someone? So why is it so important? Deuteronomy 4, verses 41 through 43, Moses establishes three of them on the east side of the Jordan, 
during the wilderness period. Why is it in such a hurry here? And it appears, this institution, in four Old Testament books, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua, which implies its importance. So it's probably more important, not for its particular cases, for, but for what it symbolizes about the character of God and other things. So let's look at that angle. First, it shows us that no innocent blood should be purposefully shed. This underlines the sanctity of life, both the one killed and the manslaughterer. We see this in verse 33, where it says, Bloodshed pollutes the land, and atonement cannot be made except by the blood of the one who shed it. Verses 31 and 32 say that no ransoms are allowed for this, whether intentional or not. Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8, No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. Second, it's a portrait of how we're to deal with our enemies, injustice, compared to the typical reflexive eye for an eye. Vendetta and revenge is not the way of the gospel, it's grace and love. And especially in that setting, without laws, disputes could easily continue throughout generations. Third, it's a portrait of the two-armed character of God, that he has arms of both justice and mercy. In the ministry of Jesus, John 1, 14, he was full of grace and truth. Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11, see the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young the two amazing arms of God. Or Malachi 4, verses 1 and 2, Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left of them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. These cities of refuge are terrific on both the justice and the mercy of God. When we didn't deserve it, God sent an atoning sacrifice to satisfy justice. But the most excellent angle on the cities of refuge is that they point forward to the person of Jesus Christ. A number of points to make here. They are our hope for safety. In fact, our only hope for safety They're what allow us to escape the eternal judgment of God. Romans 8, 1 and 2, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Or Hebrews 6, 18, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us. And Jesus is our only city of refuge in terms of justification. John 14, 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Acts 4, 12, salvation is found in no one else. Christianity is the most intolerant religion. Christianity is the most intolerant religion in that you must accept God's gift, but it's also therefore the most tolerant because it is a gift. And once we're believers, the city of Christ provides rest and refuge for us in the Christian life, the process of sanctification. There are many false cities of refuge, but we stay away from those and we find our true rest in Jesus Christ and through the Spirit. Once we understand how this points forward to Jesus, now the detail about the freedom being granted through the high priest's death makes complete sense. Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's when Jesus dies that we find our freedom and then through resurrection. 
these cities were easily entered. Think of the picture in Revelation of the gates, and there's gates on every side. Or Deuteronomy 19.3 says the roads to the cities were to be cleared every spring. We know from tradition that the bridges were repaired. The gates were always open. They were conveniently located, spread throughout the land. Any person in Israel would have had access to a city of refuge within 30 miles. We noted before that it was available to all people, whether Israelite or alien. Again, a great picture of what God wants from us, wanting salvation all to come to hope and faith in Jesus. We thank God for his mercy and grace, especially through the city of refuge that is Jesus Christ. Time to take a break. We'll be back in a minute. Today, we're finishing up the book of Numbers. In this first segment, I'm going to cover chapters 27 and 36. And in the second segment today, we'll do a wrap-up of the book. We'll start with the first half of chapter 27, which is on the five daughters of Zelophehad, and we're going to read verses 3 through 7. Verse 1 describes their names and lineage. Verse 2 is a public petition that starts in verse 3. Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives." So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, What Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. Verse 3 has the key details. Their father had died without any sons. Those are the ones who would have typically received the inheritance. And he was not among Korah's followers in the rebellion in chapter 16. And he had died in and for his own sin. He's a relatively righteous man and had a natural death. In other words, he should have land in Canaan. So in verse 4, they make their request. They want inheritance property, ostensibly to preserve the family name. This implies a number of things about them. First, that they have respect and honor for their father. Second, they have faith in God's promises concerning Canaan, and if secured, his specific blessings. And finally, their desire for a place and a name in God's promised land. For the culture, this implies that women receive nothing in such circumstances. Now, usually they would receive financial consideration in marriage through a dowry, but this is a different matter for many reasons in terms of long-term prosperity and also in terms of the promises within the promised land. So what's going to happen in this case? Verse 5, the, the petition is taken from Moses to God, and verses 2 through 4 become standard case law in the form of government. In this case, and in any special case, a decision would be made by an elder or Moses, and taking it to God is useful or as required. Verses 6 and 7, God gives the response. Basically, they're right. Give them an inheritance. We see this fulfilled in Joshua 17, verses 3 through 6. And then in verses 8 through 11, which I'm not going to read, it's then followed by being codified into a general law. If there's no son, then the inheritance goes to the daughter, brother, uncle, or nearest relative. God establishes heirs as he sees fit. So that's one application to justification in our faith. It's up to God uh, to, to choose whether we're in the family or not. We choose, but God chooses as well. Predestination, election, and the like. It's also an effective solution to a somewhat common problem. As we see with case law today, you start with a case, it becomes a law which establishes a precedent which can be extended to other similar cases. And in Israel's context, as elsewhere, it's important to keep the land and the family. But this leads to another problem that is addressed in chapter 36, the final chapter of Numbers. This passage runs through the entire chapter. I'm just going to read verses 3 and 4. 
the heads of the family come back to Moses with this question. Now suppose they marry men from other Israelite tribes, then their inheritance will be taken from our ancestral inheritance and added to that of the tribe they marry into. And so part of the inheritance allotted to us will be taken away. When the year of Jubilee for the Israelites comes, their inheritance will be added to that of the tribe into which they marry, and their property will be taken from the tribal inheritance of our ancestors. So verses one and two gives a review of the earlier case. Verses three and four is a bothersome hypothetical. If the daughters marry outside the tribe, the land's going to go to that tribe, and that's problematic. That's ironic because chapter 27's provision and new law was meant to avoid this. As an economist, this gets me excited because of the unintended consequences of many public policies. It's intended to deal with A, but often B, C, and D follow in addition or even instead. As an aside, it's also interesting that God didn't note this for them in chapter 27. He lets events unfold, and this is the result here in chapter 36. God then gives a response in verses 5 through 7. Again, they're right, verse 5. And verse 6, the command to marry within their tribal clan, verse 7, to avoid the inheritance passing from tribe to tribe. The land stays in the tribe Again, the reference to the Jubilee is helpful here as well. Verses 8 and 9 is the result of a generalized law going forward. Now, verses 10 through 12, verse 10 has the obedience. Verse 11 and 12, they marry their father's cousins. And then the book ends with general obedience. Quite the happy ending after seeing so much disobedience from the people in the book of Numbers. Speaking of endings, I want to back up to the second half of chapter 27 to wrap up our study of Numbers. We're going to start with verses 12 through 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up this mountain in the Abiram range and see the land I have given the Israelites. After you've seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. For when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of Zin, both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes." These are the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the desert of Zin. First of all, remember what was in the first half of chapter 27, which was the special case inheritance story. And in contrast, Moses would have no land in Canaan. In verse 12, the Lord instructs Moses to go up and be able to see the land. Now, this is not a taunt. This is not God saying, hey, you're not going to get to see this. This is a gracious gift that Moses gets to at least see the promised land. The first time he'll be in the promised land will be at the Mount of Transfiguration in the ministry of Jesus. And then verse 13, after that, Moses would die because of the sin at Meribah, revisited in verse 14. There are some reassuring phrases here, as your brother Aaron, and gathered to his people. So a sad and glorious ending as Moses prepares to hand over the reins to new leadership as the people are about to go into the promised land, land he will see but not get to enter. Now verses 15 to 20, Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God of every human spirit, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and the entire assembly, and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority, so the whole Israelite community will obey him. So there are two halves to this passage. Verses 15 through 17 is the request from Moses to God to appoint a man to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in. This out-in theme is mentioned twice in verse 17, out of the wilderness and into Canaan. And as we mentioned uh, quite a while ago, you know, Moses had tremendous success at bringing them out of Egypt, of course, through God's hand. 
but he had not been successful at leading them into Canaan. Ian Thomas, in his great book, The Saving Life of Christ, talks about the same thing in our faith, that we can often have the faith that it takes to escape the bondage of Egypt and enter into a saving relationship with God through the blood of the Passover lamb. But then what happens? Instead of going into our promised land, we get detoured by a lack of faith and end up wandering our whole lives or much of our lives in the wilderness. It's one thing to have the faith to get out of Egypt. It's a second to have the faith to move out of the wilderness into Canaan. Verse 17 also has the sheep shepherd analogy, which is interesting for a number of reasons. The goals going into Canaan are both internal and external. He's got to keep Israel together and he's got to deal with external threats. He's got to lead them into military battle, but he also needs to be a people person. And if you think about the sort of people who are effective leaders, in secular or religious circles, it's the same thing. It's handling external and internal opportunities and challenges. Uh, For pastors, they have to be forceful in a way that's similar to the military, but also effective in terms of relating to people, ministering, and compassion. Truth and grace, truth and love, that combo is what we're looking for, for Joshua as he emerges, but also for all leaders for all time. The other thing to say here is that Moses gives a wonderful response to verses 12 through 14. He's been rebuked in a way, he's about to face death, and yet he's still concerned for the people and their future. He's not lapsing into self-pity here. Matthew Henry says, we should concern ourselves both in our prayers and in our endeavors for the rising generation that religion may flourish and the interest of God's kingdom among men may be maintained and advanced when we are in our graves. Again, this is part of Moses' greatness. He has his flaws, he makes his mistakes, but Moses is a great man and a great leader because he continues to put the people first. And of course, he continues to follow and serve God. Another response from God's in verses 18 through 20, in a nutshell, take Joshua. Now, why now? Well, this is the best time for the transition. They'll have a short co-regency where they rule together. And Joshua's been there for quite a while at his side. And so it's a easy transition to power, so to speak, for Joshua. Now, why is it Joshua who's chosen? Well, verse 18, he's a man in whom is the Spirit. Numbers 13 and 14, we'd also say he's a man in whom is faith. We saw that there that he was a great man of courage and conviction, believing in the promises of the Lord. He's had very good preparation. He's been faithful in the small things, to use the words of Jesus, and so now he can be faithful in the greater things. His name has been changed from Hosea in Numbers 13, verses 8 and 16. Remember, the name Joshua connects to the name of Jesus. So it's interesting as well, in a parallel to Christian theology, that they would be led into the promised land by Jesus, not Moses, who had specialized in the law, but Joshua, who is a figure of Jesus. Verse 18 includes the laying on of hands by Moses. So this speaks to the responsibility and continuity of leadership, as we see with Old Testament and New Testament ordination. Verse 19, we have a public commissioning before Eleazar and the people. And verse 21 says that Eleazar also will provide counsel from the Lord for Joshua. On this last point, verse 20 is interesting, where God says, give him only some of your authority, so the whole Israelite community will obey him. That probably seemed like a strange combination to Moses and Joshua. So I get some of Moses' authority, and that will result in the Israelites obeying. Didn't seem to work that well in the wilderness, but I guess we'll see. Verses 22 and 23 gives the obedience. All of this is later ratified by God in Deuteronomy 31. Joshua continues to receive revelations from God in Joshua 1 and 5. 
And then Joshua 4.14 is excellent on this. Just after they've crossed the Jordan, the verse says, That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they had stood in awe of Moses. So Moses has done his part. Joshua has done his part. God will do his part. And here we go. All of this points to the importance of transitioning well and gives a number of attributes of what that successful transition would look like. The importance of empowering other people to lead, the importance of publicly laying out what that responsibility would look like, and then the handing over of power as the former leader dies or fades away, retires, whatever. Okay, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Purity on Friend Me There. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. Right now, we're wrapping up the book of Numbers and our 10-week study of that great book. In this segment, I want to provide a brief overview and hit some of the high points and then work to some concluding comments as we exit The thing that strikes me as a teacher, a Bible teacher, and uh, someone who loves the scriptures is that numbers is unique and that you have these huge chunks, really the largest I've ever covered in one setting over and over again in the book of Numbers. I mean, I've done whole lessons and whole podcasts on single verses, and in the book of Numbers, I've repeatedly found myself doing multiple chapters in one podcast, in one radio show. And the reasons for that are obvious if you think about much of what's covered in the book of Numbers. Everything from mundane record-keeping and reminders and small extensions of the laws that were received at Mount Sinai, things that have already been established but maybe extended, to some pretty cool little nuggets and then some absolutely huge stories and understanding where God is trying to take Israel. So we spent two weeks on chapters 1 through 10, covering about five chapters in two consecutive weeks, a blistering pace, except we weren't really diving in very deeply. Probably the highlight for me of this section is the Nazarite vow and then the famous priestly blessing by Aaron in chapter 6. And then finally, at the end of chapter 10, Israel gets to leave Sinai and start into their Uh, time in the wilderness, which is expected to be short, and then they go into Canaan, but unfortunately, that time in the wilderness is going to stretch to be much longer, and that's because of the key events in chapters 11 through 14. There we slowed down a lot. We covered the grumbling of the people with two episodes in chapter 11, then we covered Miriam and Aaron in their rebellion against Moses, and then we covered the absolutely pivotal chapters 13 and 14, where the spies are sent in. The 10 spies come back with one angle. The two spies, Joshua and Caleb, come back with another angle. And the bottom line is the people rebel, end up spending another 38 years in the wilderness. And then we find ourselves finally at the end of the numbers, with that generation gone, and the people again poised to enter the promised land. I think the thing about the reports that strikes me as so amazing is that the spies all saw the same benefits and costs, but their assessment of the benefits and cost differed wildly depending on their faith in the promises of God. Only Joshua and Caleb, seeing the evidence on the ground, interpret it properly, which is that, yeah, this is going to be difficult, but God's with us. God's promised us it's going to be fine. Chapters 15 through 21, again, we picked up the pace. Probably the key moments here are Korah's rebellion in chapter 16, and then Moses' unfortunately sad sin in chapter 20 where he gets frustrated with the people 
and in his anger commits a grievous sin by striking the rock instead of speaking to it as he had been commanded. As we talked about, there's a number of reasons why that sin was so devastating, but the number one points forward to Jesus, that Jesus was struck as in the rock was crucified, back to back to 1 Corinthians 10 and the reference there. And then when Moses is supposed to speak to the rock, that's a picture of the Holy Spirit. So when Moses strikes it again, it's not just disobedience, but it's a picture of re-crucifying Christ, which of course is not acceptable. Chapters 22 through 24, we have Balaam and Balak and the talking donkey and the humor there. And then the last couple of weeks, we've done chapters 25 through 36, again, hitting the accelerator, covering highlights like Phineas' zeal in chapter 25, and then nuggets like Zelophehad's five daughters in chapters 27 and 36, the Transjordan two and a half tribes settling in chapter 32, and then the cities of refuge in chapter 35, a beautiful picture of Christ. And finally, the first take on the transition in leadership from Moses to Joshua, which we will revisit in Deuteronomy. As we reflect on what numbers means to us in the Christian faith, I think we see the so many applications to faith and obedience or not, and within that, God's patience and his sovereignty. This is why Paul uses numbers, along with some stories out of Exodus and Leviticus, in his great passage in 1 Corinthians 10 1 through 13. He notes that their ancestors were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And we saw Moses speak to the rock, and it yielded water in Exodus 17. We saw Moses mistakenly strike the rock in Numbers 20, and that second striking when he should have spoken leads to the reason why he's not going to go into the promised land. Verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And then Paul goes on to talk about how these things are examples for us, not to be idolaters, not to be drunkards, not to commit sexual immorality, not to test Jesus as some of them did and were killed by snakes in that great passage in Numbers 21. Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. And then the classic verses, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings to us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. We keep thinking the Israelites are bozos, but we do the same sort of thing. And then the final verse in that great section, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to us all. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And so, yes, these are examples for us in what not to do and on occasion what to do. But in all of it, it's God's patience, mercy, grace, and sovereignty that trump all of that. G. Campbell Morgan says, It is impossible to have studied this book without having been impressed first with the failure of the people. It is a record of long-continued stubbornness and folly. Yet the book is a record of the unwearying patience and perpetual faithfulness of God. Indeed, it is hardly a history of the Hebrew people being far more a revelation of the sure procedure of God toward the final working out into human history of the redemptive purpose of his heart, the first movements of which were recorded in Genesis, the central work which was accomplished by the Son of God, and the finals of which are not yet. I want to close with an excellent article by Andrew Wilson in the May-June 2022 issue of Christianity Today, and it's entitled Three Reasons to Read Numbers. It's an underappreciated goldmine of pastoral wisdom. 
He notes that at dozens of leadership conferences, he had only heard two passages from the book referenced, Aaron's blessing in Numbers 6 and the boldness of Joshua and Caleb in Numbers 14, otherwise crickets. And so he's writing this essay to try to correct that error, that Numbers has a lot of great stuff in it, not just nuggets, but big themes and things that are worth our time and attention. And I hope you've uh, seen that in our study of Numbers together all these weeks. So what does Wilson say? Well, he says there's really a few reasons for this. One is typological. From the apostles' perspective, the wilderness period is where the church lives now. 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews 3 and 4, the book of Jude. We've been rescued from slavery, redeemed by blood, baptized in the waters, but we have not reached the land flowing with milk and honey. We have all the blessings found in numbers, the presence, provision, and promises of God, but we face similar problems grumbling, pride, idolatry, immorality, opposition, and death. I would tweak what Wilson says there. I think we're called to live in that promised land now, but too often we do bump around in the wilderness. In fact, the book of Joshua, I've got a book on the book of Joshua called Inheriting Our Promised Land. And if we walk in faith, we don't have to bump around in the wilderness for 38 years. We can get right to the promised land with its fruit and fight. The promised land in Canaan will not be heaven for them. They still have to work for it. They still have to put in their time. They're still going to be suffering and losses. But that's what God wants for us, not wilderness living, but living with Canaan and the fruit and fight and the dependence on God that goes with that. Back to Wilson's article, another benefit is illustrative. Other than David, no leader in scripture is presented quite like Moses with his inner life exposed, his family rivalries laid bare, his faults, fears, failures, and frustrations made plain. If David shows us the struggles of waiting and the temptations of money, sex, and power, Moses shows us the mundane challenges of ordinary congregational life, the arguments about decision-making and leadership succession, the high points of blessing, victory, and miraculous provision, alongside the everyday tedium of conflict resolution, moaning, and sin. And I think Wilson makes a great point there. Numbers has a lot to offer in terms of everyday Christian living, but especially for Christian leaders. And Moses is perhaps the paragon of virtue in this regard. But Wilson continues, he says, perhaps the most striking feature of Numbers when it comes to pastoral ministry is the way it warns of opposing dangers at both ends of what we might call the confidence spectrum. Throughout Israel's history, and indeed the history of the church, God's people have tended to oscillate between overconfidence, pride, arrogance, self-importance, and underconfidence, unbelief, timidity, and fear. Generations typically swing from one to the other as young people see the flaws of their parents and overreact. Numbers highlights both dangers in a remarkably intricate way. Scholars identify seven major trials in Numbers. The first and last see Israel grumbling about their misfortunes. The second and sixth involve a lack of faith that God will provide food and water. The third and fifth see challenges to Moses' leadership. And in the fourth and central test, Israel fails to enter the land because of unbelief. As an aside, before I get back to Wilson, the structure of that itself is amazing. But Wilson continues, he says, Laid out like this, the twin dangers become apparent. In the second, fourth, and sixth trials, the problem is underconfidence. In the third and fifth, the problem is overconfidence. The way the narrative bounces back and forth suggests that both dangers will characterize Israel and the church well into the future. It reminds us of the much more famous cycle of sin in the book of Judges, but we see the same thing embedded in the structure of numbers or something quite similar to it. I do love Wilson's conclusion. He says, Scripture is not fatalistic about all of this, as if we are forever doomed to swing between unhealthy extremes. 
In Luke 4, Jesus himself will endure the central trials of numbers. He will be tempted to not trust God for provision in the wilderness, to perform miracles just to show off, and to seize power and authority before his time. Yet he defies the tempter and leads in humble faith with neither fear nor pride. In his grace and by his spirit, so can we. Lord, we thank you for the book of Numbers. May its small nuggets and its big picture themes change our vision for what you want from us and for us and give us strategies for the temptations and the problems that come our way and clues to how to live a victorious life in the power of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. We thank you for your mercy and grace, and we thank you for Canaan, the chance to live by fight and fruit and dependence on you, to live a profitable life in your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.